So our next message will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Leading a Quiet Life. Thank you, Sean. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as I, it always is, on this beautiful Sabbath day. I have to echo what Matt said, and just uh, also what Steve said. This is the last time that we'll see each other uh, before the Passover service. So uh, today, uh, the title of my message is Leading a Quiet Life. Sounds nice, doesn't it? The idea of quietness. I can't take credit for it. Paul kind of gave me the inspiration for the title, but... It is a continuation of my series on 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're picking it up in verses 11 and 12 today. Uh, originally, I had scheduled to do this with my previous message, but I cut it into two. So I don't have a huge introduction today. I want to kind of get right into it. But just to remind us, we're talking about 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a Thessalonian church, to Thessalonica. Uh, he founded this church, him, Timothy, and Silas. And then when they left... He sent Timothy to see how this church was doing. And so when Timothy brought a report back about everything that he heard about the Thessalonians, he wrote this letter. So last time we read verses 9 through 10. And I'm going to go ahead and read 9 through 12. We're going to focus on 11 and 12 today. And the way I want to do this message is, is I want to uh, talk a little bit about what Paul's saying, point by point. But then at the end, I'm a little bit, little bit different than I usually do. We're going to talk a little bit about why... It's important why, why Paul emphasized what he emphasized. And maybe some of the implications of what was going on in Thessalonica. So Paul says this in verse 9. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. And that's what we talked about last message. Brotherly love, that familial love, that Philadelphia. That's what the word is. One of the most unique words in all of the New Testament. He says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also, this is verse 11, what we're covering today, verse 11 and 12, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And so the first word that Paul uses, or the first phrase, is this Greek word that is translated in the New King James Version as aspire. And it's a Greek word that is defined by Robert Muntz. He's a Greek expositor as to exert oneself to accomplish a thing, use one's most uh, use one's utmost efforts or to endeavor earnestly. And so some translate this phrase to make it your ambition or to make it your aim. And Paul gives us three things. We're going to go one by one, these three things that he tells us that we should make it our ambition to accomplish or our aim in our life. The first one is, of course, is to lead a quiet life. You hear that? Silence. It's nice, isn't it? And as I have aged, and many of you maybe can identify with this, silence, quietness, it's, it's nice. Right? Because we live in a noisy world. I remember when I was a kid, how my dad and 
my sister might be able to remember this. He never liked to listen to anything on the radio when he drove. And I was really into music. I enjoyed music. In his mind, you know, when he was driving down the, the road, he just wanted silence. And I used to think, man, Dad, you're so boring. In fact, when I would, like, borrow his vehicle for some reason, I'd turn the radio on, of course, right? There's nothing programmed whatsoever. I'm like, who is this guy? Doesn't listen to anything. No talk radio, no, of course, podcasts weren't around by, back then. No music, nothing. And so I, I really never understood it. And, of course, you know, in his mind, an enjoyable drive was just listening to the humming of the road. And, of course, I think that he did enjoy some good music sometimes. But I think that was a lot to do with maybe having four kids and then also working at a railroad yard for 30-plus years where constant machinery was running 24-7. It made just simple quietness, simple silence more enjoyable. And I think that I never would have thought that I would have understood that when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. But decades have went by, of course, and... You know, I have kids of my own, and I also, for the past 10 years, have worked in schools where you have hundreds of kids, hundreds of teenagers bustling about all day long for six to eight hours. I, too, find myself just simply enjoying the quiet drive home. Maybe you can, you know, identify with this as well. But Paul, he wasn't thinking, when he said lead a quiet life, he wasn't thinking in terms of an audible noise. The Greek word that Paul uses, quiet, means to be still at rest, or to live peaceably. And of course, sometimes it's referred to as the literal idea of silence, audible silence. In the Old Testament, this idea of a quiet life was often associated with images of virtue, peace, tranquility, security. It's like the famous 23rd Psalm that we read sometimes, right? Where he says, he leads me beside quiet waters, and he makes me lie down in green pastures. I got those flip-flops. Uh, he leads me down uh, green pastures first, then he leads me beside quiet waters. I think what Paul is saying is, and we hear this word quiet, is he's saying that live a life at the heart of this that is content in Christ. Let's not worry about the hustle and bustle. It's not falling prey to the noise of the world. The world is noisy. And I'm not just talking about the audible noise, of course. I'm talking about the metaphorical idea of the noisy world that we live in. I think we all would agree that our current culture promotes anything but what's known as a quiet lifestyle, especially in comparison to what the Bible has to say. Instead, our culture promotes the slogan, maybe you've heard it before, the kids all say it, YOLO, Y-O-L-O, -O, you only live once, right? You only live once. And in doing so, it encourages people, of course, to go after the flashy life. To go big or go home. The entire mainstream marketing industry is based upon this idea. Let's just think about this. Commercials today. And we can talk about this going back 30, 40 years, right? We look at commercials today. Just the automotive industry, right? You, you, you know, we had the Super Bowl a couple months ago. And that's like the biggest day of the year to see commercials. And, and everything's flashy. It's, a lot of times they're supposed to be humor. And there's some funny commercials. But just look at a, you know, whether it be a Ford or a, 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 a Tesla. You know, everything's big, flashy, fast, sleek, smooth. And, and it's in such a way, it's like, get this car and you'll have the envy of everybody. 
That's what it plays on. We even see this in restaurant commercials, food commercials, right? McDonald's, Arby's, Burger King. I was just watching one the other day, and I was looking at it, and, and, and what, it, what do you see? You see the hamburger, and it's like in slow motion. It's on the grill. All the different sites, you know, the, 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 the lettuce, the tomato, everything's perfect coloring. Sometimes you see lettuce falling, and you see fries falling. It's just all noisy. It's all meant to, of course, get us to come and to fall prey to that, you know, that impressive lifestyle, that impressive. And that's another thing that our culture tends to give off, a culture of, of, of impress. We see this on social media a lot, right? There's a whole new industry of YouTubers and TikTokers, and maybe you've seen some of these videos before. People, they make it their job basically to be TikTokers or YouTubers, and it can be on different subjects, and sometimes but there's some YouTube channels I enjoy because it's educational things like that. But what is interesting is, is that the drive is all about what is almost like a social stock market. It's all about the more likes, the more subscribers. It's almost like a new currency. And how many likes do you have? How many followers do you have? And it's sometimes very destructive. Sometimes it's about seeing people do crazier and crazier and crazier things. It's an example of the noisy world that we live in. Flash, fast, big, sleek, smooth. It preys on those worldly tendencies, those you know, carnal you know, temptations of the human mind. The second thing, and I think it plays from the, the first of, of leading a quiet life, Paul says to mind your own business. The Greek word mind is the word prasso, and sometimes it's translated attend to. And it means to occupy one's self with, be engaged in, busy oneself about. Paul is saying, don't be a busybody. Don't be one that gets into people's business. And we all have met busybodies, and I may have to admit, I was one myself, and when I was a kid, you could ask my sister who's present here. She had a brother that was an extreme busybody. You know, being a kid, four years younger than she was, extremely hyperactive, huge introvert. Rizalyn had nothing on me. Every time she would bring a friend over, I would be in her room asking her what they're doing, what are they talking about, can I be involved? I was a busybody, and I guess I thought that that was just my job. As her younger brother. In fact, I even remember that, you know, uh, when I, she would have a birthday party, I couldn't be there. I'd be shipped off to Grandma's house. <laughs> and it, it, it was, it, 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 it just kind of gives me the idea. Now, we know that's how kids are. But we kind of live in a culture that's, I guess you would say, has a busybody mentality among adults. Right? And I've talked about social media already, and I'll talk about it a lot because I think social media is kind of like a microcosm of, of, of our current culture. It's a window in the behaviors of humans today and, and what we value and what we take stock in and things like that. And I feel like 
Social media, of course, has just exasperated this busybody culture. I live in a neighborhood that has what's known as the neighborhood Facebook page. Of course, it has a lot of benefits. Uh, you know, you're selling something, you want to get rid of it. Hey, I got this, uh, you know, kid's bike, kid's grown out of it. Anybody want to, want to buy this or want to, you know, just give it away? You're baking a cake, you didn't get enough eggs, you don't have vanilla, and you need those ingredients. You can just quickly ask and say, hey, anybody spare this? I can replace it later. And so those are all good things. I, I on the side, uh, like to mow lawns. I have a few lawns that I like to mow, and I like to do it where it's people that are close by, and 99% of my business of mowing people's lawns has come from that neighborhood Facebook page. So there's a lot of benefits to it, but, but of course, there's a downside to it as well. There's, unfortunately, some demonstration of the busybody mentality from this neighborhood Facebook page. Because, just like our culture, People get on there to do more than just ask questions, ask for help. They get on there to do something, what's known in our common culture, to put people on blast. You guys know what that means? In social media, when you put someone on blast, you basically put someone's business for the world to know for everybody. And so there's so many examples I can think of. You know, somebody's kid did something on the bus. Someone's kid said something to another person's kid. And so instead of going to that individual and talking to them personally, They'll put that person on blast. Let me just tell you what Johnny did to Susie on the bus. Can you believe that? And all of a sudden, you look at that neighborhood Facebook page and that post, and all of a sudden, in an hour, there's like 70 replies. Because they're garnering, right? It's almost like a social currency. They're garnering support. Other things, you know, I've seen on this neighborhood Facebook page. Someone didn't, you know, completely stop at the stop sign. I mean, all these things are things that need to be addressed, right? But you know how you have those ring videos on your front porch, a lot of people? And so if you're like, your ring, like, aims where it can see that, they'll like, maybe, I've told this person many, many times, I'm going to put this video out on for everyone to see. And so they'll like put a video of someone running a stop sign. It's a busybody mentality. We, we live in a world where this is... In everything. And social media, I think, is one of the biggest ways that we see it. But we see it in our media platforms as well. We see it coming from politicians, celebrities, all the way down to the common people. Just people not being able to help but gossip about other individuals. To know what they're doing. To get some precious information so they can take it to another group and say, look what I know about this. Let's all talk about it. You know, those news outlets, they're called news outlets. They're really not news. They're just, I guess you would say, placating to people's wants as far as the good, juicy gossip on like celebrities like TMZ or Celebrity Tonight, I think, are two of them. What do they do? They, they, they have paparazzi that follow celebrities around, take pictures of them, not wanting to take pictures of them really just eating with their family or doing ordinary things. No, they want juicy stuff. They want something that sells Take, for example, just the biggest news story, unfortunately, in the past few weeks. Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the, at the Grammys or the Oscars, whichever one it was. It's interesting that Chris Rock, he's a comedian, right? I don't listen to him much. I've seen some of his movies, and I've, of course, he's been around for many, many years. He was getting ready to go on tour, and I don't know the numbers. I just know what's been reported. He's getting ready to go on tour for his comedy tour, and I guess that like, it's like tripled since this happened. It's interesting 
that's, I think, indicative of this busybody culture that we live in. And oftentimes, we see it on the celebrity side, but we also see it just in our normal culture. Just simple interactions between friends, associates, colleagues, work. You know, I've worked in one industry primarily, and I think that I've seen my fair share of busybodies. Maybe I've even partaken in it at some point. I, I, I'm not, I think, too good for that. I think we can all fall prey to that busybody. Hey, let's talk about what's going on in this person's life. Can you believe this? And somehow it makes us feel better, maybe, about our situation. And we're not going through that glad they don't know about what's going on with my life. I, I think it's interesting that, that Jesus said this in Matthew the seventh chapter. We've all read this because when it comes to busybodies, a lot of times it's not just about gossip, but it's about pointing the finger. It's about maybe condemning or judging people. And Jesus says this, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think at the core, being a busybody is a manifestation of that lack of contentment that we see Paul encourages to have to live a quiet life. I think that these two ideas, all three of them are linked. Busybodies feed off the gossip of others because somehow it makes them feel better about their life. At their expense. Proverbs the 10th chapter verses 19 through 21 says. In the multitude of words sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many. But fools die for lack of wisdom. So many scriptures talk about the tongue. And the tongue can be verbally. But it can just it also in the way that we talk to people and our intent behind our words. Are we saying things to be busybodies, to gossip about people? Or are we saying things because we're focused on their benefit? I also want to note in this idea of Paul saying, mind your business. He doesn't just say, you know, don't be in other people's business. But he's saying, attend to your own business. Keep your own affairs in order. I think it goes back to what Jesus said. Focus on your own planks. Focus on your own business. As I mentioned, the Greek word prasso means to occupy oneself with, be engaged in, busy oneself about your own business. It's the solution to not being a busybody. I, when I'm focused and when you're focused, when we are focused on our life, on what's going on, on positive things, working. Guess what? We have a lot less time, of course, to be busybodies, to involve ourselves in other people's business, to worry about what Will Smith did to Chris Rock, correct? I like this quote from Michael Holmes, who's the author of the New International Version, uh, New NIV Application Commentary. He says that this phrase suggest a withdrawal from public matters to devote time to one's private interest or to give attention to that for which one is best suited. In Pauline terms, that to which one has been called. 
In the context of Paul's concern for Philadelphia, that's that brotherly love in verse 9, he is advising the Thessalonians to avoid as much as possible the strife, social pressures, and tumult of the public arena and the attendant potential for violence against the congregation and to focus instead on the needs and the building up of the congregation. Because I can tell you, if our heart, if our minds are focused on the building up of Christ's body, we're not going to be at risk of being a busybody. It's the antidote for these behaviors. The third thing that Paul says, and I think that this is also the antidote, which is linked to what I just said, work with your hands. In the Greco-Roman culture, philosophers and moralists, they all debated about different types of work. And sometimes certain people would look down upon certain types of labor, such as manual labor. And we'll touch on the idea of working with our hands in just a minute. But it seems that Paul is linking the idea of not working, as I just mentioned, with the temptation to be drawn away by the noise of our current culture. And I think it's true for all generations. What Paul's saying to the Thessalonians here is absolutely 100% just as true for us in our age especially in light of all these different social media platforms, where it's so easy to get inundated with the things of this world. One of the things as I was preparing for this message, especially in the context of the Passover uh, coming up this Thursday night, was that all of us, not just the children of Israel, right, were called out of Egypt. We were all called out of Egypt. And this, of course, even includes these Thessalonians right here that we're talking about, that Paul's talking to. There's another really important scripture, I think, that's helpful when we partake of the Passover and leading up to it and the things that we are preparing for that Paul writes later on in another letter in 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 5. He says to them, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. We're asked to examine ourselves. And I understand, and we all understand, of course, that sometimes this life is hard, difficult. Let's turn to Numbers, the 14th chapter. There's, we talked about Egypt, and we know that leading up to the Passover, that at the very beginning of our calling is this pattern that God gave in the beginning of Scripture. This group of people that He's made a covenant with based upon the promises that He gave to Abraham. This group of Israelites that kind of became the archetype of the ultimate example of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us as the ultimate Passover. And there was a time that Israel, after coming out of Egypt, after Witnessing the plagues, witnessing all the things that God had done to bring them out. Egypt, they didn't, or not Egypt, Israel, they didn't want it. They became faint of heart, scared. In Numbers, the 13th chapter, we're not going to turn there. We see that Moses sends out the 12 spies, right? Go to the promised land, check out the land. And those 12 men came back and only two of them had a positive report, had faith in God. The other 10 said, this is not going to work. This is, 
we can't. We went and saw these people. They're huge. We're like grasshoppers in comparison to them. God, there's no way that we can take the promised land right now. The people there, they're just too great. Even though they had witnessed the greatest kingdom that anyone knew in the world at the time be defeated by God Almighty and the Egyptians. And this was chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. We see in verse 1 of Numbers, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night at the report of the ten. They didn't listen to Caleb and Joshua. They listened to the other ten. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. I think that sometimes in our hearts and minds we have to think about ourselves. We see Israel do this and it's easy to look at them and say, man, I can't believe they did that. Surely I wouldn't be one of those. I would have been like Joshua and Caleb. I wouldn't have had a change of heart. But then we start maybe really being honest with ourselves and we start examining our lives and we start thinking about our walk with Christ. You know, last year, or not last year, last week, Mr. Jeff Henderson from California came and brought us a couple messages. And one of those messages was about bearing one's cross. Bearing one's cross. As believers, we have died in Christ, like Christ, and we are set on this new life, this journey, and we are told that we must take up our cross and bear it daily. And this journey is not easy. This journey is not easy. And all of those Gospels, all of those you know, ministers that say that the Christian life is the, the easy life, they say that in the face of the contradicting of Scripture. That all tell us that it's not easy. That it's going to be tough. That bearing your cross in this wilderness that we're in right now is difficult. And sometimes... And this is a question we ask ourselves personally and we go to God. Is there areas or there are times in our lives that in our heart we have a longing maybe to return to Egypt? I'm reminded of the passage that we read every Passover in John the 16th chapter as we read those chapters there in the later part of John in our Passover service. Jesus talking to his disciples says in verse 32 of John 16, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And we see that that happened. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Verse 33, These things I have spoken to you that in, in me you may have peace. In Christ, we have peace. In Christ, we have contentment. And, or it's available to us if we allow Him. But He says this in the second part of the verse. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is so true. Because it's that dichotomy 
It's that idea that you have peace in Christ, but you understand that that peace doesn't look like peace in the sense that the world thinks of peace. Sometimes it's difficult. You know, there's that passage where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we see sometimes athletes, they put that like on helmets or something like that, and they kind of misunderstand what that verse is saying, which is basically Paul saying, look, I've, had, I've abounded and I've been low. And what I've learned in this life is, is that I can do it all because of Christ. Whether we're up high or we're down low, Christ is sufficient to cover us, to bring us through no matter what. He's not saying that I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me, meaning that I can win this football game, or I can win this basketball game, or I can run this race and be the fastest person out there because Christ strengthens me. It's talking about in all matters of life, in all conditions, Christ is there, and you can endure it. That he, can, he is sufficient to overcome all of those things. It doesn't say that it's going to be easy. Let's get back to this uh, section of 1 Thessalonians that we're looking at. And ask the question, just what prompted Paul to address these topics at the end of this section here? Because Paul's going to open up another section of verse 13 that's pretty hefty. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks when we get to there. What was Paul's motivation behind those three phrases? Live quietly, mind your business, and work with your hands. We kind of looked about what these ideas mean. But there is some implication that some in the Thessalonian congregation had a restless spirit about them. Leading them maybe to meddle in other people's affairs. To neglect their responsibility to work. And to provide them for themselves. What is interesting is at the end of verse 11, Paul says, as we commanded you. And this gives, of course, indication. Remember, Paul was with this congregation before this, and he addressed these things. He gave them these exhortations, him and his associates, Silas and Timothy, while they were presently with them. And in my opinion, there's no doubt that Paul knew that what, prompt, what was promoted in the culture of the Thessalonians. And he wanted them to leave those behaviors behind. Leave those behaviors behind. Leave Egypt and don't look back. So Timothy comes back. He comes back to Paul and Silas. He tells them this report. And upon, of course, uh, hearing Timothy's report, he learned that there were some who were not completely abiding by those commands, those instructions that they had given them. And apparently some in Thessalonia were neglecting the very things they should have been doing, such as working, and they were doing the very things that they should have been avoiding, such as meddling in other people's business. But the question, and we will never know until Christ returns and the kingdom's set up and we can talk to these individuals, we'll never know exactly what was going on. But when you do research on the Bible and you look into, you want to know what's happening in this community that's prompted Paul to say this, to help us understand how we can apply these things to our life. There's two possible interpretations as what was going on in this community. And I think both of them, both of them can help us 
in our lives in the here and now in the 21st century in 2022 because I think they're both temptations and I also think that they're both things that we see sometimes in our own culture and I'm talking about Christian culture and our own Christian history and past. One of them is perhaps the Thessalonians had developed an over sense of Jesus' return meaning that they started to forgo working their idea that, hey, Jesus is getting ready to come back. We don't need to worry about working. We don't need to worry about these things. And it started to lead to other things. We know that this section right here, Paul doesn't talk about Jesus' return. But in verse 13, that's the total topic. So it's possible what was going on is that there became an overdeveloped sense of what's known as eschatology, end days. The end is near. Now, the reason I think that this is something that's important for us to know is because we see Christian congregations do this. And we've even seen in our own tradition, faith tradition, people do this. Right? People selling everything they have. I think it was mentioned uh, a while back, you know, the famous 1975 in prophecy. I wasn't around for them for that time, but a lot of you were. And... It was this belief that Jesus was going to return in 1975 and we didn't have to worry about things and there was a place of safety that everyone was going to be taken to. And uh, just recently, I listened to uh, part of a sermon inspired by Matthew Steele uh, and Renee, I believe, uh, with, from Ron Dart, one of his, I guess, more popular messages I think it was the message about describing deviants down. Is that, is that right? And he talked about that. And I just thought, man, this is interesting because this was like 1990-something, and he started talking about our culture and how wrong they were in the face of so many scriptures to believe that they were just somehow were going to be whisked away to another part of the world. And kind of like Mr. Hol Mr. Henderson said last week, People all around the world, this, you know, experiencing these horrible atrocities. Of course, we can look at, you know, Ukraine and that situation, but there's many other examples that's been going on forever and ever and ever. But somehow we believe that, you know, we don't believe, but somehow some people get in their, their head, living in America, that somehow we're going to be spared of that. Now, again, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what is going to happen to us tomorrow. But what we do know is, is that it's not a good plan, according to the scriptures, to have a false sense of hope as if you don't have to take care of normal things in life because Jesus is going to return and everything's going to be all and well and good. The second, things, the second thing is what's known as the abuse of the client-patron relationship. Now, bear with me here. Uh, there's a little cultural thing that needs to be explained to understand this, but... This is the second view of some think that what was going on was there was an abuse of this social dynamic that was prevalent in the Greco-Roman uh, Greco world. John Bryan, the author of the Story of God commentary, he mentions this regarding what's known as the client-patron relationship. He says, in the Greco-Roman world, the patron-client relationship was a common arrangement between people of different social statuses. In brief, someone of a lower status would attach himself to a citizen of higher status in order to benefit from that person, often financially, but also socially. 
that a relationship was one of giving and receiving that created a cycle. Once a gift was received, the recipient would express gratitude, not merely through a thank you, but by promoting the giver, their patron in public, which then set up a chain of mutual obligations. The recipient was obligated to express profuse gratitude for the gift, and in turn, this obligated the giver to do something further for the client. All of this, all of this took place in the public arena. And so the patron, who was the wealthy citizen of some merit or status, would give gifts to what's known as a client, someone of lower status, and in exchange for the client to bolster their name, they would campaign for them, so to speak, I guess you would say. If the patron was maybe involved in some sort of political competition with someone else, or maybe they had competition business-wise, then that client would be obligated to, I guess you would say, you know, promote their patron at the expense of the other. So this was all done in public, and of course, the client would promote their patron over the other, but the client would be doing so in a way that could bring bad publicity to themselves and in turn to the congregation that they're a part of. So this is just a possibility. A client that would, you know, be involved in this, a Christian that was involving themselves in this client-patron relationship, they wouldn't be living a quiet life because you couldn't. That's not how it worked. You had to be vocal. You had to go around and promote your patron. And they would do this oftentimes as a way of making ends meet. This was their job. They didn't work with their hands. They didn't produce anything. They were just this professional promoter. And it was all fake. The whole purpose was just to be able to get the gift from the patron and to just continue that cycle. Verse 12, Paul gives reasoning for these commands in verse 12. He says, there's two reasons why his commands of verse 11, to live quiet, to mind your business, and to work with your hands are so important. Verse 12 says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. That you may lack nothing. Paul says to walk properly towards those who are outside. And he was emphatic that the Thessalonians... He was emphatic that the Thessalonians did this. This is the Greek word parapeteo. We see that he uses this word walk. All throughout the letter that Paul writes here, he talks about walking worthily. Walking worthily. And here he's, he's talking about specifically in the sight of those who are unbelievers. And we see that there's other passages. Both Peter says this, for example, in 1 Peter 2.12, he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Paul would later talk about this in Colossians 4, verse 5, where he says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. So there is this idea in the scriptures that we need to have our conduct above reproach. I like the way that this word is defined by Robert Muntz properly. This word's the Greek word, euschimonos, which means in a becoming manner. Walk in a becoming manner with propriety, with decency, gracefully. And it's also been defined by decorously. In Paul's mind, this could possibly ease, and of course, we're talking about what Paul went through when he came to the Thessalonica. We see in Acts, in the journeys that he took 
to get to Thessalonica and the different places like Philippi, which he even talks about in the earlier part of this letter, the things that happened to these early Christians. Things that I don't think we could fathom here living in the 21st century. Living in this life that we have where we're somewhat protective so far, right? Of the things that can befall Christians that other Christians in other parts of the world that are, not Christ, that are living in parts of the world that are not Christian friendly could, of course, uh, face. In Paul's mind, this could possibly, walking orderly, ease the hostility of the pagan environment that they lived in and potentially, potentially help and outreach and, of course, in evangelism. You know, it's unfortunate, I think we could all agree with this, that there's no short of, shortage of Christians, professing Christians, that is, that profess Christ but walk in ways that are anything but Christ-like. And of course, we would all agree that this does damage to the witness for Christ. This does damage and brings judgment because we know better. And I'm saying we, like the Christian Christians are to know better, but unfortunately, we're still in a fallen world and we still have people that make mistakes. And sometimes we see this done by Christian leaders prominent ones. They fall from grace somehow. They get themselves entangled in things. They, they preach a message and then all of a sudden they're entangled in some sort of scandal. I don't think that we have time to go into all that, nor do we want to, but we have to be mindful of that and the damage that that can do, especially when you're in positions of leadership. And it doesn't have to be a pastor, I don't think. Positions of leadership in your family life, positions of leadership as an older brother or sister, as an aunt, as an uncle, just an individual that someone looks up to when they see you, you know, fall from grace, so to speak, the damage that that can do to other believers, but of course, what that can do to turn off those on the outside. Verse 12, the second part says, so that you may lack nothing. The second thing that Paul says is that you may lack nothing. Paul wants believers to be self-sufficient, especially in terms of entanglements with outsiders in matters of finance, in matters of social reliability, I guess you would say, or liability. And we can see this. You know, we, we don't really have a patron-client relationship quite like the, first Thessalon or the Thessalonians do. But we can definitely see where people in our culture, there's a temptation to maybe somehow align yourself with someone else because you feel like it might benefit you. Maybe it's, you know, I'm not going to get into politics, but there's, there's, it can be at work. It can be in the, you know, social stratosphere, right? Yeah, I got young kids, and, uh, you know, they live in... It's, it's, I don't want to say it's different because I was just a young kid back in the 80s, but I always say, I go around saying a lot, man, I wish, wish my kids grew up in the 80s, before social media, before, but there was problems back there too. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that we, we see that client-patron relationship kind of exist in our life because, you know, you, your, your kid or you yourself, your wife, you might, you know, your, your kid might play on a baseball team, right? And... What do you do? And I've seen this, unfortunately. You buddy up to the coach. The parents do. Because there's a benefit there. Right? You buddy up with the coach. You make sure you're the one that brings all the you know, snacks. You make sure that you do everything you can to help them. 
hey, you guys want to go out to eat after this? Hey, we'll, we'll pay for it. Hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the check. So there's this, you know, I guess you would say, quote-unquote, patron-client relationship that does exist in our current society. Anytime that you get in some sort of entanglement with someone where really the only reason you're doing something for them is because they're going to benefit you somehow. Now, of course, in the business world, when we do that, some of that's normal. I mean, you talk about transactions. You provide a service, and they provide you with some monetary value. Of course, that's understood. I'm talking about just an inner dynamics of relationships where you kind of put it off as that you truly really are doing this because you care about the person, but really on the inside, you're just trying to get something socially in return and sometimes financially in return. I think that the importance of this topic, and uh, we have two levels of importance when we think about this. The importance, I think, in Paul's mind is that the Christian community, and we need to think about this, we're not supposed to be just like everyone else in the world. We're not supposed to say, hey, we're Christians, we're better, we got this badge. We all know that true, authentic Christianity, when you understand who you are, bare in front of a righteous God, you understand just you know, how humbling that is. But what I mean by that is, is that for Paul, it's very important when he's talking to these Thessalonians for them to retain their identity as a distinct family. And they're not supposed to entangle themselves with the typical things that the pagan world entangled themselves with. They were supposed to be distinct. Paul alludes to, of course, as we already talked about, this idea of walking. And this time he talks about this idea, peripateo, walking in relation to outsiders. He stresses the importance for believers to be separate from the non-believing world. And he is also concerned with the contempt from the outside world, that idleness and busybody could bring to the church. I think there's several levels to this. Number one, idleness could result in individuals within this group needing to get financial support from the outside. Of course, we understand that we live in a little bit of a different world, but we have different ways that we can kind of get entanglements from the outside world that aren't financial, that, that are similar. This could in Paul's mind, possibly bring about unnecessary trouble from outsiders. They see this new emerging group of people that profess these different things, but they can't even support themselves. If someone in the community was not supporting themselves when they were clearly able, those other members in the Christian congregation, out of brotherly love, may feel obligated to support those individuals. And in turn, possibly, this could breed animosity. You have half the group or you have individuals in the group that aren't doing their part. We all have a part in this faith. We all have a part to support ourselves, as Paul continually says in his letters, as well as throughout the, the different parts of the scripture. But you may have a scenario where animosity could build up and put the church at risk to having unnecessary divisions because not all everyone is doing their part. Being a busybody could result in, of course, this community's reputation being harmed, thus hurting its witness. Howard Marshall, I like this quote from him. He says, the conduct of one member of the community affects the welfare of the whole community. The reputation of the community suffers if a few members gain notoriety as idle busybodies instead of minding their own affairs. And I think that's true. I think that if we're truly believing that we're interconnected, that we're a family, that we are a part of this body of Christ, this 
living organism that's universal. And if the scriptures tells us when one member hurts or is in pain, all of them do, then I think it has to go to say, or it's true that if one member brings you know, disgrace, then it affects the other members of the body as well. And all of this, we see that Paul emphasizes the responsibility, of course, we all have in walking worthy. Walking in a manner that's distinct and a holy manner. We have a responsibility to walk by the standard that we profess. And I can just tell you right now, I, I fail miserably at this sometimes, as we probably all would agree. And as we come to this Passover season, as we reflect on that, as we're honest with ourselves, and if we bring that before God, which is really a requirement, right, for us to truly discern the Lord's body, we have to be honest and reflect on those things. In, conclu- in conclusion, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to encourage us to reflect on our lives and ask ourselves if we are living quietly. Are we living content? Are we content in Christ? Are we about our own business, our walk with Christ, over the meddling into other people's affairs? You know, when we aren't about our business is when we have those temptations to be meddling in other people's business and not living a quiet life. In light of Passover, of course, as well, just coming up in a few days, let us examine ourselves and our conduct and our mindsets and ask what areas of our life tempt us too long for Egypt. As we, this week, start cleaning out our houses, start trying to find those last little parts of leaven that we're trying to throw out as the scriptures tell us, how about we also seek to find those little parts of leaven that are in the nooks and crannies of our lives, of our spiritual lives, of our minds, of our hearts, and identify those as well. As we reflect and identify those things in our life, let us take them to God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who provides for every need, even in the midst of the trouble the world may give us.